Well, if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony, you might be familiar with this. I guess it's kind of a, a tradition for how graduation ceremonies work, uh, a way in which you can tell uh, which kid belongs to which family. Uh, so uh, they're, you know, they're reading through, maybe depending on how big the school is or whatever, they're reading through this long list of names and then they read someone's name and like these 30 people in the corner in the back go bananas because that's their, you know, daughter or grandson or whatever, right? So it's like this common tradition. Like you can, you can tell who they belong to by how they respond. They're, they're louder than everyone else. They're more excited. I coach my son, uh, Eric's soccer team. Uh, and this phenomenon, it's the, it's the same thing. Every time you know, little Johnny, we don't have a Johnny on the team, but let's pretend there is one. Every time little Johnny touches the ball, this little sliver of the sidelines goes crazy because that's, that's their boy, you know, or maybe his dad, you know, decides he needs to be the coach now that his son's touching the ball uh, and he needs to shout louder than everyone else, right? This is, how, this is how this goes. But when it's someone else's kid, when, you know, little Johnny's not touching the ball, that same sliver of the sideline, maybe that same dad is you know, half interested in the game, right? Because we're, we're really, we're here for little Johnny. The, the reactions make it obvious who each kid belongs to. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, Jesus's reactions to different groups that he encounters, his response shows us who belongs to him and who doesn't. Even if what's, what's happening is almost exactly the same, his response shows us who belongs to him and who doesn't. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see two groups and two reactions. So today we're in the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Uh, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, the past few months, uh, you may have noticed some, some recurring themes in the most recent passages we've been looking at. And, and two in particular I want to highlight because we're going to see them both in chapter 16 today. So uh, two themes. First, Jesus has been having a lot of conflict with the religious leaders. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, these Jewish religious leaders, Jesus keeps coming into conflict with them. They have issues with him. Uh, and so that is going to continue in our text today. But the second theme we've seen a lot, especially in the last two chapters, is this theme of bread. There's been a lot of talk about bread. So in chapter 14, Jesus fed 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And then in chapter 15, he had this discussion with a Canaanite woman about bread and the crumbs that fall from the table. And then last week, we saw another bread miracle where Jesus fed 4,000 hungry Gentiles with just a few loaves of bread. There's been bread, bread, bread again and again, and we're going to see both of these themes, this conflict with the Jewish teachers and this theme of bread in our passage today. This is where really the two themes come together. So our passage begins, Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So if you've been reading Matthew's gospel, this is a super familiar start to a passage, right? It seems like every other week, this is what's happening, right? Jesus is doing something. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, some Jewish religious leaders come and they're like, we got a bone to pick with you, right? They come to start a fight with Jesus. It's nothing new. But what is new is that this time it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing up 
together. And that might not sound very interesting. You're like, okay, one denomination or whatever it is of first century Judaism is just like the next one, isn't it? No, the answer is not. They are not like each other at all. In fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament the Pharisees and the Sadducees do something together, like as a team. They're, I guess they're condemned together. John the Baptist you know, throws them both under the bus and calls them a brood of vipers. We'll set that aside. But this is the one time they're like, hey, we're, we're linking arms. We're together in this. Let's do this together. They say, we're going to go to this Jesus guy as members of the same team, even though on normal terms and most of the time, these two groups absolutely hate each other. In the, in the first century, there was a historian. His name was Josephus. Uh, Josephus, outside of the New Testament, is uh, pretty much the best uh, historical evidence we have on first century Judaism. So uh, it's really interesting. A lot of what he wrote about the Jewish wars and stuff like that going on in the, the century after this um, corroborates a lot of what we have in the New Testament. But he's very interesting. And Josephus gives us a little insight that helps us understand this passage. So he talks about four groups for uh, first century Judaism. Think of them kind of like four denominations, right? So there, the, it, was, it was really four Judaisms that existed in Israel at this time. And the four groups were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. So now uh, the first two of those you've certainly heard of because I just read Matthew 16. But the Essenes, you've probably never heard of. Uh, they were kind of like the first century equivalent of the Amish, uh, they kind of lived off apart from everyone else, did everything their own way and said, we don't want to associate with other people, right? That was the Essenes. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's actually from the Essenes. Uh, and then the second group or the fourth group rather that I mentioned there, the Zealots, also very secretive, much like the Essenes, uh, but where the Essenes were monastic, the Zealots were militant. They, they were engaged in assassination attempts. They wanted to kick Rome out violently. Uh, they were very secretive about it, but they were, they were militant. That was what they were all about. But here's the thing. The Essenes and the Zealots, these two, the third and fourth groups I mentioned, uh, were tiny, tiny little groups. I mean, it's like uh, when you look at uh, like American politics, right? You've got the Democrats, you've got the Republicans, and then you've got like the Green Party and the Constitution Party and these other kind of little groups that get less than 1% of the vote, right? That's, that's basically what it is. Or uh, when Kanye West, fun fact, when Kanye West ran for president in 2020, he started a new party and he called it the birthday party. Uh, in his words, uh, because when we win, it's everybody's birthday. Okay, now you know what to do in 2024. Uh, definitely, definitely kidding. Uh, so I explained that to show you uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, right? They're the major parties in the same way the Pharisees and Sadducees are the major parties. Sure, there's tiny little groups over here, but they're like the birthday party. You know, they're getting less than 1% of the vote and they're not really worth paying a whole lot of attention to, generally speaking. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but I'm just trying to illustrate this reality. So... These two teams, Pharisees and Sadducees, who are the who's who, the major parties of first century Judaism, who hate each other, are coming together as a united front because they share a common enemy. And that enemy is Jesus. Now, we're just a half a verse in, but I want to pause there. And I just want to point out that this is the same thing that we should expect if we too are following Jesus. Even those who are normally enemies, 
who would otherwise be opposed to each other and spend most of their time squabbling with one another, even those who are enemies in the world will find common ground and unity in opposition to Christ and his church. It's what Jesus experienced. It's what Paul experienced in the book of Acts. Both the Romans and the Jews who hated each other, wanted to kill Paul. It's been the experience of Christians for two millennia. I said a few weeks ago that the Christian path that we're called to walk is straight and narrow and the devil doesn't care which side he knocks us off because there's errors on both sides. But one thing we also forget is there's enemies on both sides. Walking with Jesus means you double your enemies. So don't be surprised if you too experience hostility from both sides of the theological spectrum, both sides of the political spectrum, pick a spectrum, you will experience hostility from both ends and it might just be a sign that you are indeed walking the path of faithfulness. All right, so... These Jewish leaders, they, they come with a test for Jesus. That's what they are here for. They want, in their words, a sign from heaven. And again, this is a familiar request. It's not just, hey, they're coming up and they have a new idea. It didn't work last time. They're asking for something they have literally asked for before. In chapter 12, they said the exact same thing. And so again, they want some proof, some evidence that what Jesus is doing is really a work of God that it really is God at work, that this is a, a, a something powerful and successful. This is the thing to get behind. They want proof, but of course, again, the proof must come on their terms. They're saying, we know exactly what it should look like. We're going to set the terms. We know uh, Jesus. We know what ministry success, success should look like. We know what proof needs to look like. And, and so it's your job to satisfy us. Jesus, we want you to prove, to, to submit to our standards. And Jesus responds, verse 2. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now, uh, this probably feels super random. Uh, they're like, we want to see a miracle, Jesus. And he's like, let's talk about the weather. And I mean, he unpacks this, uh, some basic meteorology for them. He says, you can read the forecast. You know when the weather's going to be good and you know when the weather's going to be bad. It's actually, uh, you know, it's this common knowledge thing. Red sky in the evening is a sign of good weather. Red sky in uh, the morning is a sign of bad weather. Actually, I didn't know this. Apparently it's a known thing. Uh, Mike Boss, our elder who just read scripture for us, a Navy veteran, informed me last Sunday uh, that uh, the Navy has a saying Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. So it's the same thing here, right? This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, we all know about this. This is the way the weather works. Pharisees, Sadducees, you get this. But we're still left with a question. Why in the world is Jesus talking about the weather? They ask for a sign from heaven. Well, there's a double meaning, I think, is, is hidden here in the original language that's really, really interesting. So the word for heaven and the word for sky is the same word in Greek. It's the same word. And so uh, I think I have this on a slide for you. Yeah, there's all the same word in Greek. It, I mean, they said we want a sign from heaven and Jesus starts talking about the sky, which is the thing, literally, the same word they asked for. And, and I think... <laughs> What's clear is they want a sign from capital H heaven, right? Like in a spiritual sense, like a sign from God. But Jesus starts talking about 
the lowercase h, physical sky. And what I think he's doing is in a very subtle way, he's saying, you can't get your minds past the clouds. You ask for a sign from God, but really you, are, you're, you can't, the, the earthly heavens, you have this, this earthly mindset. That's all you can understand. The, the earthly sky is as high as your minds are able to go. They, have, they, they are blind to a sign from capital H, heaven. They might say they want a spiritual proof, a spiritual power, but really they have this physical, earthly, worldly mindset. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to them. And he makes that point then at the second half of verse three. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. That last line is really important. The signs of the times. What is Jesus talking about? Well, signs very clearly, uh, similar to the way the Pharisees and Sadducees used it. He's talking about Jesus' miracles, the things that he does when he's healing people and when he's preaching, probably specifically here, his, his uh, miraculous bread multiplications. But then the big question for us is, what does he mean by the times? The times. Well, Jesus, we, we're talking about the times. Well, I won't, I won't go through all of them for you, but if you look at every other time, uh, the times is talked about in Matthew's gospel. They are all about the end times, about the, the end of the world, the eschatological kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. He's saying his own life, his miracles, his message are the visible signs, the proof that the end of the world, the kingdom of God coming has actually come. And that's something the Jewish leaders were completely unprepared for. So in Jewish theology, they, they looked ahead to the end times like how uh, a student might look forward to their summer break, right? So they have, they have it circled on the calendar. They, they know when it's coming and one day it's school year and then the next day it's summer break, right? It's this, this clean difference, a clean break, a sharp line. In the same way, the Jews viewed the present age and the age to come as having this one distinct day, the day of the Lord, where one day we're here and then boom, heaven, we're with God. That was the Jewish understanding. And Jesus is saying to them, here's what you're missing. The end times, the kingdom of God is here right now because my ministry, my life means heaven is invading earth. That's what's happening right now and you are blind to it. So just like students know when summer break has arrived because the, the day on the calendar has come or maybe because it's a billion degrees here in Texas, right? So the, in the same way, he's saying the world must see the end times has arrived because of what Jesus is doing. When he heals someone, it's a sign that heaven has come down because we know in God's eternal kingdom, there is no, there is no pain, there is no crying, there are no, no more tears. And Jesus is saying, I'm getting rid of that right now in this instant so you can see heaven is invading earth. When he multiplies bread, he's not just feeding hungry people. It's not just about bread. He's showing that God's eternal provision has arrived. He's, he's taking food off the table of the eternal feast of heaven and giving his people a taste now. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they demand a sign from heaven and yet heaven is right in front of them. And they can't see it. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, 
functionally just ends the conversation. He repeats something he says before, and then he walks away. Verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. We talked about this back when Jesus said it in chapter 12. So remember chapter 12, they asked him, show us a sign. Uh, and Jesus says, you're not going to get any sign other than the sign of Jonah. And even an adulterous generation asked for a sign. So he's, he repeats the exact same thing. Uh, and we, we talked about then that the sign of Jonah is the resurrection. It's very clearly what he's talking about. Because in chapter 12, he unpacks it a little more, right? He, he says the definitive proof... The, the ultimate authenticating mark that heaven on earth has arrived is the resurrection. It shows that the end of the age is upon us because the first blow on death has been dealt. Death is a mark of this present evil age and life. Resurrection is a mark of the age to come. And so Jesus' death and resurrection is a sign that heaven has finally arrived. So Jesus is saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that faith in that sign, that belief in that, in this in-between period between the first coming of Christ and his second coming when heaven arrives in full, the sign is the resurrection. And faith in that sign is what is the marker of those who belong to Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See what he's saying? He's saying the death and the resurrection of Christ is the only thing that matters. It's, it's the defining tenet of our faith. And so Jesus is saying to these Jewish leaders, if that's not enough for you to believe me, nothing is. Nothing will satisfy you. Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian today. It's not just, you know, I think Jesus is a cool guy with some wise words. It's not, I'm on this side of the culture war or whatever. It's, I believe in this historical event that Jesus really did die and really did rise from the grave. And that because of that, the penalty for my sins has been paid. And I too am a citizen of heaven and I too will rise. That's what marks the people of God from the people of the world. Our eyes go up past the weather forecast to the sign from capital H, heaven, that Christ has died and risen. And that's what Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders they need to see. But, but I want you to notice this. They've asked the same question again, right? Back, same as, as in chapter 12. And Jesus says, actually, a lot less this time. He kind of gives them the real main idea, and then he leaves. So back in chapter 12, he explains, you know, the sign of Jonah, just as the Son of Man was in the, uh, sorry, just as Jonah was in the belly of the, the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. And he, he takes his time kind of unpacking, trying to help them see. And here he just repeats it. And then verse 4, he left them and departed. In response to their repeated sinful obstinance, he walks away. He gives one final witness to the truth and then he's gone. And friends, what I want you to hear from this passage 
is that one of the most terrifying things God can do is to walk away and let you have exactly what you wanted. It's one of the clearest signs of his judgment in the Bible is when God just leaves. He removes his witness. He removes himself. He just leaves and says, have it your way. Romans 1, Paul, in this this grand passage talking about the wrath of God, starts in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's That's the baseline statement he makes. And then he unpacks throughout the rest of the chapter how God reveals his wrath. Verse 24, how did God do that? God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. God's wrath does not always look like him raining down thunderbolts. Sometimes, actually often, in this present age, it's letting people have exactly what they want. That's what Jesus does here. He walks away. And this image of Jesus walking away, I think, should radically impact our own view of God. How does he deal with obstinance, with those who are opposed to him and who remain stubborn and set in their ways? Who continually say, I'm, same thing, Jesus, I'm still not satisfied. My terms, you need to satisfy me. Here's what I'm thinking. Is he patient? Yes, of course. He's dealing with the same problems. This isn't the end of the actual conversation. But here we see his patience does have a limit. Sometimes we have this idea that God is, is like a puppy. Just, you know, at home, looking out the window, just wait for everyone, just, just waiting, desperate for us to come home, willing to wait forever and ever. And there's part of that that's true. First Peter, he does desire all to be saved. He is long-suffering. But we cannot miss the fact that he is not patient in eternal perpetuity. And we know that because his patience has a purpose. There's a a ticking clock and it does not go on forever because his patience is telling us something. Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jesus has gone back and forth with these religious leaders. And there's, again, there is more conversation ahead, but he's, he's showing them here. At some point, he is willing to walk away. He is willing to say, we're done. He's not going to wait around for them forever. There's a ticking clock. If you, friends, remain obstinate, if you remain stubborn and resistant There's a time when he walks away from those who are not his. Maybe you're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Maybe you you have a lot of questions for Jesus, and that's that's fine. Jesus never says the questions are the problem. But do do your questions come from a a humble interest or from a a stubborn resistance? And if it's the latter, there's a, a warning here. His patience will not last 
forever. And you need to hear the message his patience is preaching. It is preaching, repent and come to him. Don't stay in your obstinance. That's what the Jewish leaders missed. And it's, it's a horrible shame because there's really, really good news ahead for those who do follow him. We'll see that in the next section. So this first section, first four verses, is all about Jesus dealing with his enemies, these religious leaders. And next we see how he deals with those who are his. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So again, if you've been paying attention throughout Matthew's gospel, this is familiar. There's another conversation here about bread. That was the problem before Jesus fed 5,000 hungry people with very little bread. He did it though. That was the topic of conversation with the Canaanite woman. And there was a topic of conversation again when he fed the 4,000. And the disciples here, they they make this statement. They, They go across the lake and they say, we forgot to bring bread. Which if you think about it for two seconds, really shouldn't be a problem. We'll come back to that because they, they still think it is. But first, Jesus looks at his disciples and having just walked away, he's clearly thinking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the mistake that they're making. And he makes this comment. He says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So again, this bread theme continues. Jesus makes this comment about leaven. I shared a few weeks ago, the only thing I am personally able to cook is popcorn. I'm very good at it. Uh, Not to brag, but it's a fact. Uh, But that is the full extent of my culinary expertise. That's about it. Uh, Fortunately, our, our God has blessed our church with several people capable in making delicious sourdough bread. Uh, And so I was able to get some help here, uh, despite my limited knowledge of bread making. What is leaven? So some of you know this and you'll just have to bear with me. Some of you are like me and like, I don't know what leaven is. Here's what it is. We'll give you the scientific uh, definition first. It is a combination of bacteria and yeast that eats the flour and dough and produces carbon dioxide that makes it rise. Half of you just fell asleep. That's okay. Uh, In Jesus's day, Uh, leaven would have been a little bit of last week's dough that gets mixed in with this week's dough. And the point is, it's this living organism that eats its way through the flour and makes the bread rise. It it spreads through this whole batch. So what is this image? What is this point Jesus is making when he talks about leaven? Well, what's important to know about leaven is that it does its work slowly, but inexorably. So its work is unseen, but it's total. Over time, it it will spread through every millimeter of that dough. So the image Jesus is using, he's he's warning of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the enemies of Christ can have an invisible but powerful influence on the disciples of Christ, which is pretty simple. Well, uh, the disciples uh, must have been more popcorn guys like me because they totally don't get it. Verse 7. And they, the disciples, began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was in the car with my oldest, Eric, 
Uh, and we were listening to a, a really good song. Uh, it's called Jesus Strong and Kind. It's kind of a more kids' worship song about how strong and kind Jesus is. Great song. He's heard it probably a thousand times. And it talks about running to Jesus in the song. Uh, and Eric's in the back and he asks this great question. He goes, Daddy, what does it mean to run to Jesus? And I go, wow, this is the moment. This is it. Like, this is such a good question. I get to, like, I get to answer. Like, this is so exciting. So, uh, so I, I tell him, you know, it's about running to Jesus. It's about putting your faith in him. It's about trusting him, confessing your sins and saying, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. I want to live for you. And Eric was quiet for a second. And he said, I can run really fast. <laughs> and that is typically how our spiritual conversations go. He failed to understand it's not about running. It's a, it's a metaphor. Get the whole running thing out of your mind. It's not about running. I try to say something, you know, profound, spiritual, insightful, and that, he takes it super literally, does not understand. Uh, that is exactly what the disciples do right here. Jesus speaks this profound spiritual truth, and they're like, yeah, 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 okay. We don't have any bread. <laughs> I mean, they missed the point entirely. And not only that, but again, their complaint is painfully familiar. Now, I've said this two or three times already. We're going to do it again. Let's just remember over the past few weeks. So I'm going to read some passages. Just before Jesus fed the 5,000, this is what happens with the disciples. Matthew 14. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So they realize they're low on bread. And then Jesus feeds everybody. And then next chapter, before Jesus, feed, you know, the, there's 4,000 uh, and the disciples come and they say to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They're low on bread again. And Jesus feeds everybody again. And now they're low on bread again. They're hungry again. They're with Jesus again. And again, they start freaking out about the fact that they don't have bread. I mean, uh, from a basic, basic math perspective, Jesus has fed 9,000 people, not counting women and children, just 9,000 men with two measly lunches. And here's 12 dudes who are worried about where their next meal is going to come from. I mean, it's the lowest bar for a problem I can imagine. They, they have a walking bakery with them. The dude cranks out more dough than Krispy Kreme. It's ridiculous, and they're freaking out. What's their problem? Verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this. I love that. Aware of this. He, he's not like, that's a surprise. Where'd the bread go? But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Remember the Canaanite woman from the last chapter who had no bread but asked Jesus for the crumbs? And of course, by that, she meant the salvation Jesus offers because she understood the metaphor, right? She got it. We're not talking about bread, Jesus. We're having this conversation and we both know we're not talking about bread. And Jesus praises her because she has great faith. Because she knows run to Jesus isn't about running. Bread is not about bread. She has this heavenly mindset where she looks at Jesus and she sees the arrival of heaven on earth and she says, I want your bread. 
I want the crumbs. And even though the disciples sometimes got it, they sometimes understood, they constantly forgot it. They repeatedly were were drawn back to this earthly mindset. We don't have any bread, and they've forgotten who they're dealing with. And so Jesus does a history lesson, which what we just did, verses 9 and 10. He says, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? So he's reminding them, obviously, on just a physical level of the abundant bread he produces. He's like, you're obviously not going to starve. There were more leftovers with the previous feedings than there was bread to begin with. So there's this this physical side. But not only that, what he's emphasizing here is the the spiritual significance of his miracles because he's saying it was never about bread. Can't you see that? They gathered 12 baskets from the 5,000. It was a Jewish crowd and 12, obviously the number symbolizes the totality of the Jewish people, the 12 tribes. So the point was there, Jesus provides an all-satisfying salvation for the Jews. And then they gathered seven baskets from the 4,000 because that was a Gentile crowd and seven symbolizes perfection, completeness, the totality of the nations because Jesus not only provides an all-satisfying salvation for the Jews, but for all peoples across the whole earth, all those who will come to him, that's what he's showing. It was never about bread. And they're missing the point again. Verse 11, he says, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here's the disciples' problem. It's not just that they misunderstand. It's that their misunderstanding is a product of the very problem Jesus is trying to address. The very thing he's warning them about is the very mistake they're making in their ignorant response. Because they're acting like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their, Their eyes are fixed down here. They can't think above the clouds for even a second. They're stuck in this earthly mindset. Jesus says leaven, and all they think about is how their tummies are grumbling. When instead, Jesus is saying there should be a categorical difference between the the thinking of Jesus' disciples and the thinking of his enemies. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they they want a sign from heaven, right? They want proof on their own terms, and that's, that's not surprising. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, that's exactly what they do. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's what they're doing. That's a, their, their worldly way of doing this. And, and so everyone, everyone, Jesus, or Paul is saying, Jews, Greeks, whoever, wants some authenticating proof that this ministry, this thing, whatever, is a, a work of God, that it's authentic, that it's real, that it's successful, but they want it on their own terms. Jews want miracles. Greeks want, they want wisdom, rhetorical skill, because those are the things they associate it with, with success. That's the worldly mindset they have. So what is it for our world today? What do we associate with success? What is the leaven? What's well, easy? There's three C's for you. Charisma, crowds, and cash. That's what the world is all about. Those are the things we say. If you've got that, 
success. There it is. Right? We, we want a leader who can work a crowd. We want masses of people following and we want money in the bank. That's how our culture measures success. And the problem is if we, as Jesus' disciples today, adopt that same mindset and let the leaven of unbelievers infect our measures of success in the church. Right? We want pastors who are exciting, Godliness and faithfulness may be a side bonus. We want to see masses of people because everything is about numbers. Just visible, visible success, visible numbers. That's how we know something's real. And we want money in the bank, which isn't irrelevant, but it is very easily deceptive. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we, we see the danger of making money a barometer of ministry success. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich. Congratulations, church in Laodicea. You're flush with cash. You say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But then Jesus says to this little suffering church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. There's different kinds of wealth we might consider. We think charisma, crowds, cash, prove God is at work when Jesus focuses on something different entirely. What is it? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. That's what they say. That's the mark of ministry success, of authenticity, Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus has already said it. The cross, the resurrection is the sign, is the proof. And so church, the measure of our success or of any church is our faithfulness to have that message heard from our lips and seen in our lives, regardless of leadership's charisma or how full our sanctuary is or how much money we have in the bank. That's the measure of our success. Is the cross and the resurrection what you hear and is it how we live? That's what we should care about more than anything, lest we let the world's leaven infect our church. There's one more thing I want us to see before we close. Something that I think just shines out of this passage. I want you, church, I want you to look at the patience of your Savior here. We saw the limit of his patience with the Jewish leaders, but is there the same ticking clock? Is there the same limit with his disciples? And make no mistake, the disciples just can't get this right. They constantly forget. They are definitionally obtuse. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're same questions, same problems, same story again and again and again. And actually, it's about to get worse. In our passage next Sunday, Peter is going to repeat this same mistake, the same kind of earthly mindset in a much worse way. Jesus is going to tell him about the coming cross and resurrection, and Peter's going to rebuke him. 
and say, don't do that. And Jesus tells him, you're doing what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. Verse 23, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Same mistake again, Peter. Brothers and sisters, if you've been following Jesus for really any length of time, you've experienced this in your life. You continue to wrestle with the same old sins. You have the same old problems. You're praying the same prayers. And sometimes it feels like the cycle never stops. I've already repented for that. Shouldn't, shouldn't I be done with that? And I, here I am, and I, I did the same thing again. And maybe along that way, you've had some, some mountaintop experiences, moments where you said, oh man, God, you showed up in a huge way and I will never ever be the same. I won't fall back into those same sins. I will be totally different. And maybe a few years, a few months, a few days later, you fell right back in. Continue to have the same struggles. What you need to see here is this, while the disciples, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they too make the same mistakes again and again, but there's one main difference. Jesus never leaves them. He never walks away, and he never will, because they're his. It's not that the disciples are different from the world, because they never mess up. They never repeat the same mistakes. They never misunderstand. The difference is they are his, and they follow him, fumbling all the way, but they follow him nonetheless. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus has you, when he has called your name and made you his own, you are his and you are his forever. He will never walk away. It's one of the key promises of the gospel, that you may fight the same fights, you may make the same mistakes again and again, but if you belong to him, he will never, ever leave you behind. If you're a parent, you, you know what this is like. You, you tell your kids the same things. They make the same frustrating mistakes. You teach them the same lessons again and again. But you'll never walk away because they're yours. And that is but a fraction of the love and devotion and loyalty and affection that our God has for you, Christian. It's a truth we see all over the Bible. I just want to show you my favorite passage that teaches it. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Very, very simple statement. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Pretty simple. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why do I love that? Why, why is that my favorite? Uh, well, it's nerdy, but it's okay. In Greek, there are nine words in that sentence. Five of them are the word no. Five times. It's like God is saying, I will never, no, never, no, never abandon you. It's like the idea is so offensive, so outlandish to God. It's a violation of his very character to even suggest he would even consider it. No, 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 no. That, brothers and sisters, is the holy commitment your God has made to you, fumbling all the way, by God's grace, seeing growth, seeing change, but always trusting him when you continue to fail, continue to fall, 
and knowing that you are his and he will never, no, never, no, never let you go. Let's pray. God, you are good and we don't deserve it. You have set your love on us in Christ. You have called us And despite our constant fumbling, our constant mistakes, your love never wavers. You never reconsider. You never back down. You have said you are mine and you will not renege on that promise. And we just want to praise you. We give you so much gratitude and glory for the great gift of your grace. And I I pray, God, that for any here who maybe yeah maybe think that you're about to walk away that you would bring the conviction god that if they are yours you will not and if they are not that they need to turn and they need to repent and they need to run to you god that's something i can't do that's not something anyone in this room can do something you can do by your grace and we pray you would do it we love you and we lift these things up in the name of your son amen